0: The scripture this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. Hear the word of the Lord. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. "'Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these.'" "'Well said, teacher,' the man replied." And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. This is God's Word.
1: Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your Word, and we ask now by power of your Holy Spirit, you would open it to us, give us ears to hear. Lord Jesus, we ask that we would hear your voice this morning. My voice means nothing Your voice is the one that changes lives. And so speak and give us ears to hear your voice this morning. We thank you that you are present here with us, Lord. And may we experience you together now. May you be glorified in you alone, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So if you, God forbid, awoke at night and your house was on fire, what would you get as you escape in the moments that you have? I think everyone would say your family, of course, uh, your wallet, your computer. As I know, some, some of you laugh about the computer. Some of you would be glad to see those things burn up. You have other priorities. Uh, maybe it's your passport and personal documents. Maybe it's precious photographs, Maybe it's a memento a grandfather or grandmother gave to you. Maybe it's love letters that you've kept in a box and treasured over the years. So whatever it is, you're standing safely outside your home as everything else burns to ashes, and you realize what you've done. There's great significance in what you've just done because you have just made some very important choices You've decided what is most important to you in the midst of a crisis. The things that you have with you in those moments are more valuable to you than the tables and the chairs and the china, the stereo equipment, the books and the clothes that you left in the house. What you've discovered is all the thousands of other things that are inside a home or apartment burn up where your priorities are. What do you consider most valuable? That's the significance of that decision, that choice you made in that moment of crisis. You've discovered where your priorities really lie. And I I say that, and I use that as an illustration, because that's exactly what the teacher of the law is doing in this passage when he comes to Jesus. Faced with the whole volume of commandments in the law, What commandment really matters? Which one do you grasp onto as most significant? And what's the significance of that choice of saying that commandment is the most important? Plus, what are you saying about all the other commandments when you say this is most important? There's a lot involved and so you're going to remember, we've, if you're visiting with us, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We'll continue doing so all the way until Easter when we'll finish the Gospel and then we'll start a new series. Where we are at this point, Jesus has already entered Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. He is standing in the middle of what at that time was considered one of the wonders of the world, Herod's temple. Herod's temple this enormous, grand, and glorious structure. And so Jesus and his followers are in the temple compound, and we've seen for the last few weeks he's been grilled by various Jewish religious leaders, all trying to trap him, disqualify and discredit him with their trick questions. We've seen the Pharisees come to him was that the voice thing again? Yeah. If you're visiting, uh, yeah, my P- they like making me sound like Pee Wee Herman or one of the uh, chipmunks or something, I, you know, some squirrely thing in the electronics, so it's the government's fault. <laughs> you see, they're getting rid of our frequencies and they're making us use these digital packs, it's true, <laughs> so, okay, if it comes out, just ignore it. And now I at least know what you're laughing about. (laughs) A few weeks ago, I had no clue, because I can't hear it. So I know a few days you just start laughing, and it wasn't intended. Okay, whatever. Uh, Where was I? Um, So, uh, yeah, there's all of these religious leaders. The Pharisees have tried to trick Jesus. The Herodians have tried to trick Jesus. And the Sadducees have just tried to trap Jesus, discrediting Him. And He is very deftly answered all of their questions. And so if you picture what's going on, it's, it's Holy Week, and there are thousands of Jews coming and going throughout the temple, particularly religious leaders. And so Jesus is engaged in these debates with the various religious leaders who are trying to trap him. And so you'll hear this conversation probably animated going on, and people will stop and listen in, and, and see what is going on here. Why is there a big crowd? And what, what's happening? And so that's how we're introduced to the religious leader in our passage today. We read, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. So who is who's it referring to? Right now it's referring particularly to the Sadducees and Jesus debating. Remember the question from last week over the resurrection and marriage and all of that thing. So that's what he's been listening in on, and he noticed Jesus had given them a good answer. And so now he is prompted to ask his own question. And what I love about this, here's a guy who's asking a sincere question. This isn't a trap or a trick for Jesus. This is a guy who he has just heard great wisdom come from a young rabbi in answering this very delicate question that's put before him, and he wants to know what of all of the commandments is the most important. It's a genuine request. Now, if you know the Old Testament first five books of the law, the book of Moses, Genesis, you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, in that first five books of the Bible there are 613 commandments that the religious leaders had been able to discern in the first five books. And you'll remember from last week, the Sadducees, they didn't recognize any books as authoritative beyond those first five. The Pharisees did. They recognized the rest, you know, the, the prophets, not just the law, but the prophets, the poetry, everything else, the history. But the Sadducees, they, so they were sticking in this, there are 613 commandments just out of the first five books. And this is a long debated question among religious leaders at that time. What's the most important? If you have 613 and they all deal with how we relate to God and how we relate to other people and particularly the religious worship of the people of Israel, what's most important? Literally what the scribe asked Jesus is which one is first? First. Not meaning first given, chronologically, which one is first in priority? Which is the first that is, as the NIV, that's why they translate it, the most important one given. So he asked, seeking, what is this wise young rabbi going to say? And here's Jesus' answer. The most important one answered Jesus is this: here. O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And you see, just notice here, Jesus is fusing these things together. The first part of Jesus' answer is very well known to any good Jew. He took this from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is known as the Shema. Shema simply means, listen, Israel, or hear, O Israel. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. That's where his answer comes from. Anyone standing in the temple complex definitely knew that and could quote it. And here's why I know that. Because if you went to any synagogue worship service, that was the opening lines of every single worship service you ever went to. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the, that's how every worship service began. Any devout Jew prayed that prayer from the Shema twice a day, once in the morning when they woke up and once at night before going to bed. In fact, they not only prayed it, they wore it on their bodies. Because if you read Deuteronomy 6, you'll see that was part of the commandment. Write these things on your foreheads. Wear them on your... And so the Jews actually had these little things called phylacteries, these little leather boxes. And you can... Devout Jews still do this today. They wear them on their forehead, wrap them around. They roll leather down their arm and there's a little phylactery on their arm. And as they say and pray the Shema... They're wearing it over their mind, over their heart. There's also, Jews had these things called mezuzahs because part of the command, too, was to post them on your door frame. And there were these little things that they would tack to the side of a door, and inside of the mezuzah was a scroll, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you go to Jerusalem today, you can buy a mezuzah for your home. You can also get one on Etsy if you want. But every Jew knew this. Even devout Jews today, from the time of Jesus to the present, they have twice a day prayed this prayer. They wear it on themselves. They put it on the thresholds of their doors. It is the creed of Israel. So this was not surprising. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, this is where we start messing it up, and here's what I mean by that. Western people like to say that Jesus is somehow doing a psychological analysis of humanity, and so you get these four components of who we are, heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's not what he's doing, and this is what a lot of evangelical Christian preachers like to do. What Jesus is doing is he's telling us four ways in which to apply this thing. And then what we'll do is spend the rest of our time talking about how you love the Lord your God with your heart, and then we'll talk about how you love Him with your soul, love Him with your mind, love Him with your strength. That's also not what He's doing. It's not meant to be a four-point way of applying this. What Jesus is saying, what the Shema is saying, is that everything is to be devoted to a loving God. Everything is to be devoted to a loving God. It takes all that we are. Anything that makes us up, that is to be given to Him in love and worship and adoration. No half measures. Every aspect of our lives. Whatever we do, we are to do out of love for Him. It's... It's a not as a beautiful way of saying it here, but you could summarize it this way. We are called to love God as hard as we can with everything we've got. And I tell my girls, never say the word never, and don't use words like always and everything, because there's there's almost always an exception to that. Not here. Love God with everything. You are all that you have to the fullest. You see, we're called to love God in the same manner that He's loved us. Do you realize that? God loves you. A dear friend here in this church said he was well into the latter part of his life before he had ever heard the fact that God loved him. He was in a Billy Graham crusade. And that's what called him finally to faith was that there is a God which he generally believed, but he did not know that this God loved him. You see, we are called to love in the same manner that we have been loved by God. And the beautiful thing is, you and I aren't called to love some abstract force in the universe. That's not our God. Our God is a personal God who's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. God has given up everything in his love for us. He went and died on a cross for us, laying down his very life. Why? Not as an example. Go and do likewise. He did it because he loved you to pay for our sins to reconcile us to the father that's the depths of his love i will give up everything out of my love for you and so when we're called to love him with everything it's just a response to the all encompassing love our god is love and when i say everything here's just some examples of that this this isn't even everything this is just what i could come up with in a in a few minutes this week we're to love god with our decisions our emotions, our desires, our passions, all of our energy, our thoughts, the opinions we hold on to, the judgments we make, the things we choose to read, anything we call a possession, we are to love him with that, all the power of our being Physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, whatever power you have is meant to be used in love for the God who loves you. Our creativity, our plans, our agendas, our commitments, our devotion, everything. Our love for God is to make all other loves pale in comparison. And what Jesus is saying here too what's so beautiful about summarizing the 613 laws in this way and saying this is the start of the big one. You can't obey God until you love Him. You you see, that's what he's saying here. You can't obey Him until you love Him. And you can't love Him until you know that He has first loved you. I've told you guys the story about me. I was in seminary. It was my second year there. And I had reached a point of spiritual dryness. Literally, you could have summarized my walk with the Lord as I talked a whole lot about Jesus and very little to him. Because I was so in the academic mindset of studying theology and scripture, and it had become an academic exercise to me. And my heart had shriveled in different ways. And one of my professors, he could see it. His name was Charles McKenzie. We called him Sherry. He's the former president of Grove City College, and he had retired and was teaching at RTS, and one morning on my way to chapel, he pulled me inside and very gently said, Rick, do you love him today? And what am I going to say? No. (laughs) So I said, what you're supposed to say. Well, of course, Dr. McKenzie. (laughs) And he said this, and this is what killed me. Why do you love him? And I'm like, because I had not been experiencing his love because I had made God kind of an abstract academic exercise. And he saw I was having a hard time answering. And he said, maybe it's because he first loved you. You see, he knew. You can't love God unless you first know how much he has loved you. And my friends, God loves you And he has shown that love in the sending of his only son, Jesus Christ, who gave up everything because of his love for you. We love a personal God who loves us personally. And we're called to simply love him in the same manner with everything that he loves us. That's the first part of this. But then Jesus goes on and he adds a second... And and the lawyer didn't ask him to do this. Jesus does this, I believe, because it's so important to his overall mission. And he adds, and love your neighbor as yourself. And you know, this doesn't mean you love others and you don't love yourself. You neglect yourself. What it means is you show the respect and care to everyone else that you would show to yourself. I love that this passage, it, this wasn't planned, that this passage falls on Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. It's beautiful that it does, though. It's so accompanied, doc, accompanied and you know summarizes in many ways Dr. King's life. Love your neighbor as yourself. And, and, and you know, we we like to play games. We you know, because we think it sounds spiritual. I don't love myself, do I? We, we play these games, I, you know, I, I hate myself, I think. That's an old Seinfeld quote, for those of you who know, used to watch that show. Jerry thought he had found the perfect woman. She was just like him, you know, just like him. And after like a month of dating, he broke up and his friends are like, why in the world you loved her? He's like, no, I don't. I hate myself. I can't love her. <laughs> we play these games that, you know, I don't really love myself, but we do because our lives are centered around ourselves. We take care of ourselves. We put ourselves first in almost everything. We demur that we don't, but we really do love ourselves. This second part comes from Leviticus nineteen eighteen, And what's unique about it And what Jesus does here, this is the first time ever in recorded history that any rabbi took the Shema and fused it together with Leviticus 19.18. And what we get when you have Jesus saying, this is the greatest commandment, these two things that he puts together, literally from the Greek it's mega. What's the mega commandment? This is it. You want to know what the mega commandment according to Jesus is? The Lord your God is one, love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the mega commandment. And what's so amazing about this, this is what Jesus does with this. He summarizes the Ten Commandments. You realize the first part is the first four of the Ten Commandments applied to God. The second six, love your neighbor as yourself. His answer is completely comprehensive, Also, and this is important, Jesus is telling us that love for God and love for humanity cannot be divided. You know, John's going to later write this. This is 1 John 4, if you want to look it up. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Okay, so let me stop there for a second. You realize what that means? If we are here this morning, we're harboring bitterness in our heart to a brother or sister in this place, we are liars saying that we love God, because you can't love God and hate your brother or sister. Ouch. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Jesus says you can't have one without the other. And that's why, my brothers and sisters, our attitudes towards everyone has got to be love them as you love yourself. That means when you go to work tomorrow, the man or the woman that drives you nuts, love them. That means we love everyone regardless of whether they share our values or not we love them as we would love ourselves maybe they voted completely differently from you you're a democrat they're a republican you're a libertarian and whatever you love them the way you love yourself maybe you're black and they're white maybe you're white and they're asian It doesn't matter what race. It doesn't matter what country they hail from. It doesn't matter the socioeconomic background and whether you're on the same plane or not. It doesn't matter whether they're a have and you're a have-not, or it's the reverse. It doesn't matter. What Jesus is calling us to is to love as we love ourselves. It's an amazing thing. And he's also saying, and don't tell me you love God. If you don't love others you see what he's doing here this is my third point under this is he gives us a conscious and to me a conscience convicting standard why is it because one this is he summarizes it so it, it's easy to remember this love god with everything love your neighbors yourself okay that's really easy to remember and boy does that sear my heart because you know what I don't think I've done this for 30 seconds ever in my life. Ever. To love God with everything that I am. To truly love my neighbor as I love myself. It's a convicting standard. But it's what Jesus lived his entire life. You realize this. You know, and I firmly don't believe that the world can do this without the power of Holy Spirit. But if the world could live out this mega commandment, the world would be different overnight. You know that? There wouldn't be war. There wouldn't be all this garbage that goes on. It would all change. Our neighborhoods would look different. You know, if if, if only Christ's own people, those who call on Him in faith, if we just live this fully, I think our neighborhoods would look different. I think our neighbors would be blown away by how we treat them and love them, even when they don't love us in return. And what Jesus is saying in a roundabout way here, if you read it carefully, he's saying, my kingdom work. Because you know, he's on his way to the cross. Remember that. Never forget, where is he heading? He knows he is on his way to the cross. He just said it in the previous passage. I know where I'm going and I know what I'm doing. And here's why. Because what I am doing is going to bring this commandment within reach of you. He really expects us to live this thing out because he believes that God is now fulfilling his ancient promise to renew people's hearts through his work. So that's Jesus' answer. And then we have two responses, one by the scribe and one by Jesus. Here's the scribe's response. He goes, well said, teacher. Beautiful answer. There's, it's, it's an exclamation. The man literally is blown away, and this is a very high compliment he's giving Jesus. This is sincere well said. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no one, no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Whoa. Now, now remember, put yourself in the temple and you're the Sadducees and you're the other Pharisees listening and you're like, okay, I'm with this guy. I can't believe he's complimenting this Jesus guy. But at the end of this, Oh, uh, more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices? Time out, buddy. You've gone too far. You see, it's, it's a bold thing for him to even compliment Jesus when all of the other religious leaders are trying to trap him. But then he says, what you have just said is more important than this whole thing surrounding us. Mind-blowing to the other religious leaders. Because the lawyer, musing on Jesus' answer, draws out a meaning which Jesus had not said out loud, but is there. Namely, if these commandments are the primary ones, what Jesus has just said, and if this is what worshiping, loving, and serving God is all about, then all that the temple stands for The daily, weekly, annual round of sacrifices and offerings is virtually unnecessary. That's why this would have been mind-blowing. And he gets, when a crisis comes, loving God and loving your neighbor is what counts. What matters, sacrifices don't. And his statement. You know Jesus has already said once and he's about to say again this temple is going to be destroyed. And Jews at that time couldn't believe that. This is the center of our worship. Jesus is saying it's going to be destroyed. We're going to see that more next week. And this young man, the scribe says, "Well said teacher, what you have just said more important than everything else here." And for Christians who would later see the destruction of the temple, they would be reminded of this and see Okay, yeah, what Jesus said is more important than everything that the temple stood for. You see, when people exude genuine love for God and others, which I believe only happens in faith in Jesus Christ, then you have offered a sacrifice of praise that is well-pleasing beyond any other sacrifice except Jesus' own. Now Jesus compliments the scribe and he makes a very brief statement. You are not far from the kingdom. The scribe is so close. So close. He has recognized something that most of the other religious leaders couldn't even comprehend. And Jesus' statement is a a compliment, but it's also a little bit of a warning. Because here's here's the warning. The compliment is... You are not far, but the warning is you're not in. And there's a difference between being close and being in. Close does not equal in. That's the warning. You see, it's possible to be within an inch of heaven and miss it. Being almost there is not the same thing as being there. Let me illustrate it this way. On the day after my fifth birthday, a man named Evil Knievel decided he, I know it's a weird illustration, but he decided he would jump the Snake River Canyon in his rocket motorcycle. So on September 8th, 1974, after months, of all kinds of promotion and all this stuff. He had drawn it out. He's going to jump over the Snake River Canyon in his motorcycle, and it's going to be glorious. And he takes off. And when this thing takes off, you can go look at footage. It's amazing. There is power. There's energy. It is amazing. And he shoots up into the sky, and he's going for it. And he's going, and he's doing it, and then he's not doing it. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, the nose starts diving, and he's nowhere close. And he pushes the parachute. And as this thing sails back, he literally comes back to almost where he started and crashes below in the foot of the canyon. And I use that as an illustration because Evil Can Evil, though it was grand and glorious, and it looked like he's almost there, he didn't make it in. Making it halfway isn't making it making it an inch from the edge technically isn't making it jesus is saying you're close but you're not there sir james simpson some of you if you're if you're a doctor you probably know this name he was a scottish obstetrician but the reason why people know him he was the discoverer of chloroform and chloroform revolutionized medical care particularly in terms of managing pain very significant changed medicine and so sir james simpson later in life was being interviewed by a newspaper reporter who wanted to kind of get the story about this greatest discovery and so he went to sir james and said so sir james what do you consider your greatest discovery Uh, an obvious lead-in to the answer being chloroform What the reporter didn't know was that Sir James Simpson is a devout believer in Jesus Christ. And this is how he answered the question to him. He said, My greatest discovery was when I discovered I was a sinner in the sight of God. Not what the reporter was looking for. And so the reporter decided, I'm going to try again. And so he says, Okay, thank you, Sir James. And now would you please tell me your second greatest discovery? To which Sir James said, by all means, my second greatest discovery was when I discovered that Jesus died for a sinner like me. Such a discovery causes one to cast yourself on God's mercy and trust wholeheartedly in Jesus Christ. And you know, at that point, the reporter's just pulling his hair out. But Sir James Simpson meant that. My greatest discovery, I'm a sinner. And my second greatest, God loves me and died for me, and I am saved in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, where are you today? Are you almost there, or are you there? I know, given a room of this size, some of you, you've been seeking, and you're almost there. You're close, but you're not there. It's kind of like You're about to take a a great vacation and travel to a wonderful place, but if you don't step from the runway onto the airplane, you're going nowhere, baby. You can get close, but if you don't take that last step onto the plane, you're not going. And what's the last step of being almost there that this young scribe had? It was that he would, and I pray he did, because we're never told what happened would come to the realization that what Jesus was about to do was save him from his sins, that Jesus' death on the cross paid for it all, and he placed his faith fully, whole-weightedly on Jesus and then knew truly the love of God. You see, that's the final step. You can be so close. And let, me, let me illustrate it this way. That means, my friends, you can have grown up in a Christian home You can have godly parents. You can have all kinds of knowledge and yet never have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's even possible to be a preacher of God's Word, to have studied theology, and to not be there. And you say, how is that possible? I'll give you two examples. John Wesley Someone who changed Christendom in England and in this country. Devout follower, seeker, was in the holy club at Oxford. He was so close, he wasn't there, because he had not come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Steve Brown, a personal friend of mine, one of my seminary professors, was up preaching in Boston. And one day, finally, the Holy Spirit convicted him, you talk about all this stuff, and you don't believe And he humbled himself and finally trusted in Jesus Christ. His life has never been the same. He took that last step. It's possible even, my friends, for you to know mentally of the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and yet still be resting on your own good works. Your good works aren't enough. It's possible to have all the right answers and not trust in Christ. You're almost there, but you're not in. So where are you? Where are you today? If you're almost there, here's what I plead with you. Today can be the day of salvation. Today can be the day that you know the love of God and experience it in all of its fullness in a way that you could never comprehend. And it begins by placing your faith in Jesus Christ who loved you with everything he had. Take that last step. I beg of you, talk to me, talk to another pastor, talk to somebody in the prayer corner after the service. But if you, I know many of you, you know you're in the kingdom. You know, you believe in Christ. And here's what I want to say to you this passage is a considerable challenge to all of us. And here's what I want to ask Would anyone looking at us, just observing us, say, whether it be looking at Stonebridge? looking at our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our workplace, would they say that we are a people who embody what Jesus says is most important here? That when they look at us, wow, that person, I may not agree with them, but they love their God with all that they are. And they love people the exact way they love themselves. That's the challenge for us. When a crisis comes in this nation, and I pray it doesn't, but what if an EMP goes off? What if the food chain gets shut down? What if an invasion took place or, you know, Hawaii had these threats. It was horrible what happened over the weekend in Hawaii. Parents are stuffing their kids down manholes because they thought a missile was about to hit the islands. When a crisis comes, what's going to define us? What's going to show that is most important? Love for God above all things and love for our neighbors self, Or are we going to hold down getting our guns out, shooting at anyone who gets near us in an effort to save our own skin? When the crisis comes, what's the mega commandment? Live for self, love God, and love neighbor. Os Guinness wrote this. He said, God calls people to himself. But this is no casual suggestion. He is so awe-inspiring and his summons so commanding that only one response is appropriate, a response as total and universal as the authority of the caller. Everyone, everywhere, and in everything should think, speak, live, and act entirely for him. That's the challenge that Jesus gives us in the greatest commandment. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we cannot live this out in our own strength at all. And so we pray, Lord, let us experience more and more your great love. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and change us, Lord, so that we could love you with all that we are and that we could love neighbor as ourself. All for your glory. Help us to live as you have given your life for us, Lord. And Lord Jesus, I pray that for everyone here today, they would know the depths of your great love for them. Your love that surrounds us, that fills us, that overwhelms us. May we experience that. And to you be all honor, Jesus, because you alone are worthy. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.